Good morning. Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to Second Peter as we proceed beyond where we have been in our study of First Peter, wrapping up that text uh, a week or so ago, and now turn our attention to Second Peter. And uh, the introduction to this text is an age of twisted truth. We live in an age of twisted truth. But here's what you need to understand as we move through this process in this age of twisted truth. There is an answer. There's no such thing as twisted truth. There is truth and there is non-truth. And when you add something that is not true to something that is true, it makes it not true. And this notion that there's middle ground called twisted truth is just a false notion. This notion of, well, that's what you believe, it's not what I believe, is a silly defense for truth. It is either true or it's not. And Peter's going to be writing to deal with truth. How do we determine what is twisted truth, not truth at all, and what is true truth, as Francis Schaeffer once called it, the truth that comes from the Scripture? The truth that comes from the inspired text. More than anything else, twisted truth in the age in which we live is simply a manifestation of the spiritual battle of worldviews that has taken place beginning in Genesis chapter 3. We are in a battle, and that battle is the battle for truth. That battle for truth includes the person and work of Jesus Christ, He said Himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father except through me. It is a spiritual warfare that we, we find ourselves in, and it's being played out in plain sight, and many would shudder at the thought that perhaps we're losing this battle for truth. Be encouraged this morning, we don't lose, and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. The only way we lose is if we abandon true truth if we get away from the truth of Scripture. And that's really what Peter is going to be addressing in his second epistle. And it's a little bit different than the audience that he wrote to in First Peter. It may have included some of those recipients, but it is dealing with uh, individuals who are suffering primarily through persecution and people who are being impacted by false teachings and false teachers, not just in the world, but even in the church. In essence, Peter's going to kind of change gears a little bit and move from uh, an epistle of comfort and encouragement. The suffering will endure for a little while, but you're going to be okay, to transitioning to some of the discomfort in the world and in the church uh, coming from false teachers and false teachings. And Second Peter then is less a book about comfort and more a book about confrontation and, in fact, warning. Watch out. Be careful. This is what is going to happen. And he's trying to write to encourage us or to uh, assist us in discernment of really knowing true truth and being able to differentiate between true truth and twisted truth, so much so that in this short epistle, he uses the word know 16 different times. He points out that there are dangers from without to the church in persecution in 1 Peter, 
Now he's going to talk about dangers from within the church when it comes to twisted truth. Now, some of you may have read a little bit about Second Peter or heard critics of Christianity say, well, uh, Peter really didn't write it, and this was a disputed epistle, and, and it was only added to the canon by some political kind of process. Without doubt, there's been some disputes on the authorship and the text of Second Peter. But those disputes were resolved in the second and the third century, and it became readily accepted in the church that this was a book from Peter to deal with this issue of true truth, and the attention to the text speaks of that true truth and reflects the very character and nature of Peter. Uh, for instance, we're going to find out about Peter writing of the transfiguration in chapter 1 in which he was there. He was an eyewitness to that, and he speaks of that eyewitness testimony. We're going to have Peter speaking about the time that uh, he had denied Christ on, on several occasions and, and, and was confronted by Christ, and afterwards at the Sea of Galilee uh, being told that he would be martyred for the cause of his faith. And we see that Peter is writing this epistle just prior to that martyrdom. It's there if you want to see it. So it's been accepted into the New Testament. It's quite similar to the book of Jude dealing with some of the same issues. It was probably written under the reign of Nero uh, closer to the late uh, 60s, maybe 68 AD. And the church tradition is that it was written from Rome while Peter was in prison just prior, just prior to his martyrdom. And again, church tradition would say that Peter was martyred on a cross upside down because he didn't feel worthy to be to be killed in the same manner of a Savior, Jesus Christ. To set aside all of that textual criticism, set aside all of that debate, it is included in the canon of Scripture because it passed the test of canonicity and was recognized from late third century until today as being the Word of God written by Peter addressing the issue of truth and what we might call true truth in an age of twisted truth. We're going to embark on this journey together. We're going to do this text verse by verse through the end of it and address some really important matters both outside the church and inside the church, particularly today when it comes to twisted truth. Before I pray to begin our time together, I'd remind all of the parents that you're invited after our Sunday school ABF hour up into the refinery. We're going to meet with you. Lori and I will meet with you, let you know what's taking place in the fall in youth ministry, let you know of our schedule, what we're trying to accomplish, the topics that we're going to be studying, and to answer any questions you might have about the teen ministry and uh, how you might help us as we minister to the teenagers, most particularly in an age of twisted truth. Pray with me, please. Father, I'd ask that you would bless us as we spend the time in your Word this morning pray that you would not allow us to get lost in the weeds of the introduction, but there's some really important issues we have to talk about. Remind us as we get to the text of our hope, the source of mercy and grace and the promise that we have in Christ alone. And as Peter writes to those who were experiencing twisted truth outside of the church in that Roman empire, and even dealing with people on the inside influenced by that twisted truth, peddling it in the church, 
Give us the boldness and courage to speak up and to speak loudly for Your glory, to tell the truth, true truth, in an age of twisted truth, to teach God's people to sort through what is right and what is almost right for the glory of God. May we heed the words of Peter in this second epistle. For Your glory alone we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Some might wonder, where do you get this age of twisted truth, Pastor? Where where does that even come from? I apologize to you that you've been living under a rock and haven't been paying attention to what's… Everything out there is twisted truth today. We see twisted truth in a cultural setting where the sexual ethos of Judeo-Christian values and and morality has been so twisted into some malleable thing that doesn't even resemble uh, true and genuine sexuality, and it's anti-science. And yet somehow they have twisted this truth to such a degree that they've made you and I as Christians to feel guilty about taking a stand on sexual issues because they have pinned on us this notion that we are denying the right of the homosexual, the right of the transsexual, the the right of the gender dysphoria. We're denying their right to even exist. Can someone tell me how we are denying their right to exist? We're taking issue with sexual morality. We are not discarding. We are not doing away with. We are not chasing down and killing those who don't hold to our same morality. That's twisted truth. No one's denying their right to exist. We are denying this twisted truth and saying, thus saith the Lord. How about when it comes to the, in, the, the issue of, of, of the bifurcation of sex and gender? You can be born one sex or the other, but then you can choose your gender. That is a twisted truth. It, it doesn't even hold up to arguments of, of coherency. It is just absolutely ridiculous. And yet, we, we buy into this and we begin to wonder, some of our teenagers are wondering, what's to this, Pastor Jim? Here's what's to this. It is a twisted truth, and we must be on guard. And the Bible does not bif- bifurcate between sex and gender. You are born, according to the science, with a 23rd chromosome that is either an XY chromosome or an XX chromosome, and that makes you what? Distinctly male and distinctly female. That has been settled science for a long time. Tell me who's really twisting the truth here. We live in a world that is twisting truth when it comes to to politics, this whole notion of the squad, as they're called. Tax the rich, tax the rich. They're not paying enough. The truth of the matter is they're paying the lion's share of all taxes today, significantly. They pay more than 50% of the tax burden, this this top 1 or 2%. Did you know that even if we raise the tax issue on the wealthiest of Americans to 70%, we still will not cover the expense of the Build Back Better that's being rammed through Congress today? That's twisted truth, and we have to be really careful that we can sort through all of this. In education, there's twisted truth when it comes to critical race theory, and this notion of systemic police violence toward black individuals. The statistics simply do not bear out that truth. It is tragic. 
And it is wrong when a black person, an unarmed black person, is killed for no reason. It is absolutely wrong, and we condemn it with no reservation whatsoever. But white men are 55% more likely to be killed in those police shootings than black men. You see, you have to dig below the surface. You have to kind of look at what's really going on today. It is tragic whenever these police shootings involve, but it doesn't make the police systemically racist. It simply doesn't, and the facts don't bear it out. But that's the problem. We're not dealing in a factual world. We're dealing in a world that thinks emotionally today. And if they can can touch upon your emotions and make you angry about something to such a degree that you're not thinking about that same something, they can lead you down a really dangerous path. And that's exactly what's happening. Peter is going to write to these believers to think rationally, not emotionally. And as we look at the text, it'll bear itself out in the context of what we know to be true. Do conservative Christians really care about racism? Absolutely we do. We just don't believe that equity resolves the issues of our culture. We believe that only Jesus Christ can resolve these issues. You see the difference there? This is a twisted truth. This is what we face. How about science and climate change? Anyone here a climate change denier? If you deny that the world's going to end in 10 years due to climate change, you are a climate change denier. But in fact, some of the leading scientists in our country today do not deny that there's been an incremental rise in media temperatures. They just reject this political agenda that the world will end in 10 years. It's just not going to happen. What is true? It's a twisted truth as opposed to a true truth. And here's the mantra, follow the science. What does that even mean? Scientism, as we introduced you to it, is this notion that science is the only means to uncover truth, and science is the only means which to base morality upon. That is not science, that is scientism. And we introduced a phrase to you a long time ago called perfidy by obfuscation and pedophagy. If you don't remember that, let me me help you out with that a little bit. It is a part of this age of twisted truth. Perfidy is willful deceit. By obfuscation, blurring all the lines, here's how it goes. Biblical Christianity is angry and unkind to those that don't embrace a biblical morality. That is an emotional argument. It's not a factual argument. It's an emotional argument. You will never win that argument. So we have to refrain uh, and, and, and reframe the argument, well, what is morality? Now we're talking about the same thing. And as we go through all of this, what we found is a culture of twisted truth that is simply trying to divide and conquer and destroy through relationships. What you might not know is this cultural Marxism that is in existence today and has infiltrated the church, and we'll talk about it in a little bit, is seeking to destroy the nuclear family. 
is seeking to upend all morality of a Judeo-Christian ethos, and to replace it with what they say or think is something better. Don't make the mistake in this age of twisting truth and thinking that somehow they want to sit down and have a, a rational conversation with you. They do not want to do that. They want to eliminate people like us and our belief system. And in this age of twisted truth, when you, when you control the narrative, you can, quote-unquote, control the truth as well. It's a really, really dangerous thing. So what we need to understand as we make this transition from 1 Peter to 2 Peter is that in 2 Peter, or in 1 Peter, we're reminded that the display of the Christian faith according to Alistair Begg and his message on the book of James, the display of the Christian faith is not revealed in some blissful otherworldly experience, but is revealed in the rough and tumble of everyday life. In other words, uh, the revelation of where you are and where you stand and what you believe is most profoundly manifest in times of trial and difficulty. What will separate those of twisted truth and those of true truth today is how we look at this world and what we cling to as being absolutely right in spite of the persecution, and that's the persecution that he addressed with First Peter that was taking place in Rome. Again, he is taking from First Peter into Second Peter uh, a, a leap from bringing comfort to now confronting and warning about false teachers and false teachings, specifically for Peter in the church. But I would suggest to you that the false teachers and teachers in the church are being fueled and educated by the false teachers outside of the church. And we must be very careful that we're able to decipher and discern the twisted, twisted versions of, of Christian truth. So let me explain to you what a couple of those things are. Has anyone run across yet the Halloween Advent calendars? Let's stop and think about that for a second. Holiday Advent calendars. Advent, from probably the sixth century on, has always been tied to the four Sundays prior to the celebration of Christmas in the church of Jesus Christ. And Advent has always meant a, a, a coming of, of a notable person, a coming of a notable thing, a coming of a notable event. Most churches, Orthodox in nature, celebrate the Advent, but it's four weeks and, and the four weeks preceding Christmas. It has always been, at least culturally, for generations and generations, in fact, centuries, about the coming of Christ into the world. And yet now, peddled in this world is an Advent calendar for Halloween. Oh, big deal. Why is this such a big deal? Stop. Here's why it's a big deal. They are trying to replace Christ with paganism, and Halloween is steeped in paganism. And they're playing a word game that brings confusion and conflict to people's minds. When we hear Advent, we hear about the celebration leading up to Christmas, and now it's being hijacked for Halloween. Just beautiful. How in the world 
did we get to a place like this? Christianity has been invaded by social justice, equality, and equity. In fact, we're being told, even in evangelical circles, that social justice is part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen carefully. It is not. The gospel of Jesus Christ is about the finished work of Jesus Christ, paying the sins for your sin, or paying the price for your sins and my sins on a cross of Calvary, dying, buried, raised again the third day, and neither is there salvation in any other. You cannot connect those two, and when you do, when you add error to the gospel, what do you do? You make the gospel untrue. Does the gospel of Jesus Christ have social implications? You bet you. When you come to know Christ, there is no Jew or Greek or slave or free or male nor female. There are social components to the gospel, but don't say that the gospel has to include social justice. That is a false notion that has been perpetrated on the church. It is a, a twisted version of the truth. We're living in an evangelical church that has been divided on the issue of sex and gender. We spoke about this recently in the deacon meeting that we just had as we're looking at some of the challenges to contemporary Christianity. There is a side A and side B of the same-sex debate in Christianity today, and some of you might not even know that. Side A, Christianity, leans towards rejecting absolutely rejecting the historic orthodox teachings that affirm that same-sex relationships and same-sex marriage is unbiblical. There are people in evangelicalism today who have jettisoned any historic orthodox belief on homosexuality and said, you can be a Christian and still accept and embrace homosexuality as a normal part of the Christian life. It's called side A Christianity in the debate of same sex. There's a side B that says, well, you can identify as a homosexual, you can have lust and cravings towards someone of the same sex, but as long as you affirm the ethic on sexuality and marriage, as long as you don't act on your lust or act on your desires and maintain a celibacy and don't get married to someone of the same sex, you can still be a Christian. Those are two sides of the debate. I suggest there's a third side. It's not side A or B. It's side G, capital G, God. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, if you look on another person with lust in your heart, you're guilty. You're guilty. We, we twist the truth in such a way that it brings us confusion even in the church of Jesus Christ today, and that's a dangerous, dangerous, dangerous thing. Fans Havner famous southern evangelist once said, the temple of truth has never suffered so much from woodpeckers on the outside as from termites on the inside. Now, it's just kind of his way of talking. <laughs> He's saying, you're all afraid of the noise of the woodpecker, but the structure and the truth are being twisted and destroyed on the inside by termites. We can't let that happen. That's exactly what Peter is speaking to in the context of this passage of Scripture. What was happening is the false teachers were accumulating people on one side or the other, and they were causing conflict in the local church. In fact, literally, they were destroying the unity in the church. 
Therefore, there was a call for unity from some of these false teachers that is so much like the call for unity in evangelicalism today that goes something like this. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you care about peace and justice and treat people well. It doesn't matter what you believe. Isn't what you believe what determines how you see peace and justice and other people? The destruction of the unity of the church was addressed by the Apostle Paul when there was a perversion of the gospel. He says in Galatians chapter 5, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, and these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. In other words, truth matters. And then he talks about the desires of the flesh. Listen to some of the words as to how he describes it. Envy, enmity, strife, dissension, division, jealousy, etc., and etc., and etc. I suggest to you in an age of twisted truth, our culture is being divided by the talking heads in collusion with the media. But I fear that the same thing has taken place in the church of Jesus Christ today. And we are the last line of defense for that church, humanly speaking, to speak the truth boldly and proclaim boldly the truth of Jesus Christ. But we must move from emotional to rational engagement based on facts and be able to discern between right and almost right, according to Charles Spurgeon. And we must be ever, ever wary of Proverbs chapter 18, verse 17. The one who states his case first seems right until another comes along and examines him. We are living in an age of sound bites. The first to tackle a problem, because if you can tackle the problem and get your narrative out first, it becomes almost impossible to challenge that narrative that's happening outside, that's happening inside. And it's happening inside, according to Vody Bauckham, when it comes to racial issues, by what he calls the 11th commandment, thou shalt be nice. you have your Bibles open, let me quickly take you through a quick purview of Second Peter and Jude. Thou shalt be nice. For whoever lacks these qualities, the qualities of spiritual maturity, the ability to, to understand the full knowledge of Jesus Christ, whoever lacks these qualities, verse 9 of chapter 1, is so nearsighted and blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. And that's kind of tame as to where he goes from there. They're nearsighted and blind. We did not follow cleverly devised myths, verse 16, when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, Christ himself, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. 
and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. He describes them in verse 10 of chapter 2 as bold and willful, blaspheming, verse 12, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant. They don't even know what they're talking about. They count it pleasure, verse 13, to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls, their hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Thou shalt be nice. Jude. He says it is necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept unnoticed who long ago were designed for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. These, verse 16 of Jude, are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires loud mouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. You want to know the greatest advocacy of heresy spreading through the church? It's the lack of the boldness of preaching to point out twisted truth and boldly declare true truth. If we cannot speak plainly and clearly to these things, the world will not hear the truth. That's really where Peter is going in his second epistle as he addresses the matters laid before him. Verse 1, Simon Peter should be no mystery as to whom the writer, alleged writer of this text is. It is the Hebrew form of Peter's full given name. It's used several places in the gospel. And in Acts chapter 15, verse 14, this rock, Peter, his Hebrew and Greek name. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Interestingly, he plays upon much of chapter 1 and 2 and even chapter 3 of 1 Peter when Peter spends a lot of time talking about the word hupotasso. Anyone remember what that means? A willing submission. Tying the epistles together, Simon Peter says, I am a servant. I am a I am in submission. It is my duty to tell the truth. I am living in obedience. His experience is I must serve my Savior as an apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle is someone who was officially sent forth by Christ. It was a divine commission. It was only for those who were a witness to the resurrection, and these apostles were given authority to go out and to proclaim true truth. But in proclaiming true truth, they also had the responsibility of untangling false truth or twisted truth in confrontation of where the world was and where Jesus Christ was as faithful servants. So, Peter begins the text by saying, I am submissive to Jesus Christ as His apostle, and I must tell the truth. 
I'm a herald of the truth. I was officially sent forth to tell the truth, and that truth is all about and founded on Jesus Christ. And I tell the truth to those who have obtained a faith of, of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. His commission, his letter is then written to believers who are falling prey to twisted truth to proclaim true truth in his willingness to be submissive to Christ and a faithful herald as an apostle of the things of Christ. And he's writing to other believers presenting himself as in submission to Christ himself to tell the truth. Peter's appointment wasn't a self-appointment, and this is so important for church leadership today. Peter's authority was not in a title. It was in a divine commission, and it was grounded in truth. It was grounded in truth. That's where his authority comes from. You give up all authority in the pulpit when you fall prey to twisted truth. You give up all authority when you, when you uh, reduce yourself to moralizing and talking about, well, people ought to live… The, well, what does the Bible say? You give up all, all authority and all truth when the truth of the Word of God is not the very foundation of what you believe and what you practice in the context of of life. His authority was rooted and grounded in the truth, an objective truth that led him to obtaining faith of equal standing in Jesus Christ alone. To those who obtained a faith, to those who have gained by divine intent or will salvation in Christ alone. I'll take you back to the first epistle of Peter, and in that first epistle he says in chapter 1, verse 3, "'Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for according to His great mercy He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead.'" to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter is addressing the very same people, those who have been rescued through Jesus Christ according to His great mercy, causing us to be born again. We have obtained faith through divine will, and for some unforeknown reason, God chose us before the foundation of the world. I don't know about you, that's glorious, because I had no ability to choose Him. He found me, and in mercy and in grace, He saves me. And I have obtained a faith that Peter describes that is a faith of equal standing with the apostles. (laughs) Their great faith is the same access to the great faith that I have, and that faith is only accessible through Christ alone. We have this authority structure sometimes that says that those in leadership have more faith or greater faith than everyone else, and that's simply not true. Peter said, I was saved the same way you were saved. And we have the same faith, and it's a faith in Jesus Christ. And that is where our authority comes from. That is the foundation. This isn't a self-appointment. It is Christ Himself who found me. And all of us have equal standing. Those of you concerned about social justice, let me tell you what that equal standing means. 
Jew and Gentile are alike. White and black are the same. Male and female have the same glorious gospel that grounds them in the truth and sets them apart from the world. And our faith is so grand that we are no less than the apostles. And the faith that we have and the responsibilities that we hold, our faith is not rooted in our earthly identity. It is rooted in our identity with Christ alone. That is a refreshing truth in the midst of the social justice movement that is taking the church captive today. It is not me or you, white or black, male and female. We are in Christ, and that's what binds us together. And the world's using that to drive us apart. Don't let it happen. That's Peter writing. And our righteousness is of God, and our righteousness is rooted in our Savior, Jesus Christ. He continues, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Historically, grace has been defined as God's unmerited favor. It's what God does for us. It is what God gives to us. It's what God provides to us when we're undeserving. If the question leaping into your mind is, well, how do I know if I'm deserving or not? I'm here to tell you, you're not. That's what grace is. It's unmerited. You don't deserve it. He is doing it because He loves you. He's doing it because He called you. He's doing it because you're in the Father's hand. He's doing it because the Savior's hand is clasped over His Father's hand, and nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That is mercy beyond mercy and grace beyond grace. God did that, and it's glorious. It's glorious. May you know grace. May it be upon you. May it be a part of your life. May you champion that grace, and may peace be multiplied to you and the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ. May you have peace in all circumstances, and may that peace be an outgrowth of grace. How do we have peace? when we find grace, when we realize that God did this, when we realize it's not dependent on us, when we realize that His salvation is glorious in nature, when we realize in times of suffering, First Peter, when we realize in an age of twisted truth, we are still sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit of God. We are still God's children with the same standing of the apostles. When we realize the glorious depth of God's grace, there is peace that comes over our souls. And we realize as restless as we might be and get in an age of twisted truth, everything's going to be okay. It's a peace that passes understanding. You can't describe it. I can this morning. It is a peace that is multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace does not come in circumstances, and peace does not come in, in giving solutions to this twisted truth. Peace is found in a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ alone. In the book of Romans, Paul writes it, therefore, since we have been justified or declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God. Did you know that at one point in time you were an enemy of God? 
Did you know that you were depraved and so separated by God that there was no hope for you? You were a a, a child of wrath waiting for destruction. But when God found you through Jesus Christ and declared you righteous, you found a peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You were no longer an enemy but a friend to as many as received Him. The Gospel of John says, to them gave you the power to become the children of God. You are children of the King. And that peace that comes with being a child of the King is grounded in the justification of Jesus Christ by faith. Through Him, we have also obtained a faith and access by faith into the grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the glory of God. When he says that we have peace with God, it is in the present tense that is saying we possess it from the very moment of salvation and no one can rob us of that peace. It is, it is a peace that passes understanding as we stand in the permanent condition of being saved by grace through Jesus Christ alone, and that leads to jubilation and rejoicing, knowing that no matter what happens, we are secure in Jesus Christ. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Are you rejoicing this morning? We don't have to control the media. We don't have to control the narrative. We don't have to persuade people. We have to tell the truth. And the truth begins with Jesus Christ. And the truth of Jesus Christ is is unfolded in the Scripture. When the true, true truth of Christ is stifled in the church because we're trying to be nice and not offensive, Twisted truth prevails. So Peter's writing to the challenges that the church is going to be facing in an age of twisted truth. And he's celebrating peace. I love how one commentator wrote it, peace to all who are in the Prince of Peace. Stop and think about that for a second. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation, but don't worry, I've overcome the world. This isn't going to be easy. You will have obstacles everywhere you turn. The Prince of Peace has come to bring peace. He says, peace I live with, leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. May the peace of God be multiplied to you in abundance through the knowledge of God. And this is the crux of the matter. As we wrap up this morning… He is saying that a full and thorough knowledge of God and His grace and His mercy and His truth, an intimate understanding of what true truth is and what trusted truth is, a a, a grasp of what is right and almost right is the only way that you can stand in an age of twisted truth without losing your bearings. Grace and mercy are not interested in your feelings. They're interested in the gift of God through Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be abundant in your life. Next week, we'll talk about perhaps some of the very clear challenges that were being faced by these believers that Peter writes to. But I want you to flip to the end of the book where he concludes all of his words. 
giving this imperative command. An imperative is something that is commanded, something that you have to do. It's something that is required of you, particularly in an age of twisted truth, but grow in grace and in knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen and amen. We must grow in grace and mercy and peace, and we must grow in our knowledge of Jesus Christ. It reminds me the words of Jesus in, in John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, Jesus is speaking to Jewish individuals who had followed and questioned Him. And as He speaks to them and presents Himself as the great I Am, the light of the world, they get to a, a point in time in this discussion where Jesus says to them again, I am the light of the world. You need to abide in my word, and, and you need to embrace me as that light, and you need to acknowledge who I am. And he says to them, if you abide in my word, the truth of Scripture, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. I fear that what Peter will imply in Second Peter, what Jesus is implying to these Jews who had followed Him around and heard His teaching, is that some people will believe, but not all faith is saving faith. Not all faith is saving faith. What, what, what does that even mean? Back in the Reformation, even prior to that, and, and post-Reformation, there was this notion that there were really three components of, of faith, and, and those components were described to us in Latin terms, and within those Latin terms, there was a notitia. There was an intellectual component to faith. You couldn't have faith until you gave an intellectual consent of, okay, I hear what you're saying. I understand that faith is in Christ alone, grace and mercy and Christ alone, an intellectual assent to faith. There was also an ascensus aspect to faith where, where it was a different faith. It's not just, okay, I hear what you're saying, I understand the facts of that, and, and a census will be, I am confidently affirming that that is true. This was the Jews that Jesus was speaking to in John chapter 8. Historically, theologians also talked about fiducia, and that final aspect of faith that said you must take action on that truth and embrace it as your own in a life-changing kind of way. If you were to read a little bit further, you're going to find that some of these Jews who are following Jesus said, we've not been a slave to anybody. Almost persuaded is a faith that doesn't get you home. Some of you know and say, okay. Some of you know and say, yeah, I believe that. But until you embrace that truth, salvation in Christ alone, until you commit to abide by His Word and live in an age of twisted truth only on true truth, there's room for doubt and question. If you abide in my Word, 
You are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And you shall be free indeed. We live in an age of twisted truth where people are in bondage, and it is only Jesus Christ that can release them from that bondage. But it's not just a mental kind of faith. It's not even a wink and a nod in repeating that mental faith. It's embracing it in every area of your life, including the boldness to tell the truth, even as perceived at not nice. That's what Peter is writing in his second epistle. In preparation for Peter's death, knowing that he was now going to turn this faith over to the people who had made a profession of faith and they needed to fight the good fight that he has started. Well, that's a long introduction to a rather brief book, but it's an important introduction. An age of twisted truth must be responded to with true truth, and that truth is only found in Jesus Christ. And if you know Him, you are free indeed. It is my prayer for you this morning that you know Him, and that you're free indeed. Not just free from twisted truth, free from the bondage of sin and free to tell the truth, knowing that it's all true because of what Christ has done for us. Thank you for this time. Bless us as we embark on this study, as we dive deep into the text from now on, having understood the historic nature of the letter and some of its challenges. I pray, Father, that You would lead us to truth, that You would give us a boldness, that we would reach into our community, that You'd give me wisdom in dealing with our teens, that they might know true truth, that they might know what it means to be free indeed. May we all know that in an age of twisted truth, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.